Welcome to the Way Family Church Sermon Podcast. We are glad you're here with us. Join us in person every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. at Lafer Middle School in Tucson, Arizona. And we're going to be in chapter 25 of Acts. It's Paul, Paul's appeal to Caesar. Now, before I get started with this, I just wanted to share with you a little bit of a challenge that I've been having. The more we continue to go through Acts, which is a good thing for us to just expose the scriptures and take it from page to page, from verse to verse, chapter to chapter, etc., because there's a lot that we would otherwise choose to skip on, especially as preachers. And I'll tell you one thing, I'm at the point where if it were totally up to me and not the conviction that the Lord has given me, I would completely skip on these because it's trial after trial after trial after trial. And guess what? Today, another trial, right? But the Lord has something very specific and special for us, and we don't we shouldn't miss out on it. So with that, let's just dive into chapter 25 of Acts. We'll read it together and then we'll go and, and dissect it a little bit more. All right. Acts 25. Paul appeals to Caesar. So now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking him, or asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he, oh, so said he, let the men of authority come among you to go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them, not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul er argued in his defense, he said, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and, and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it is not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charges laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his cases, 
such evil as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried regarding them. But when Paul appealed to be kept in custody for the decisions of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who, present with, who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people men, uh, petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought to not live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he, as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. 26. But I have nothing definite to write about, uh, to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word. We ask, Father, that you would uh, just help us understand your will, Lord Jesus, for us through this passage, through this chapter. We thank you for the Apostle Paul, your servant, who has been such a great example, Lord Jesus. Help us be more like you, that as Paul said, to, to imitate him as he imitates you, Lord. We want to do the same and be able to say the same to others. Imitate us as we imitate you, Lord. So help us be more like you each and every day. May the word sink into our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as I mentioned, another trial. This time he's getting ready for one, uh, another one. And so here's the, here's, the, here's the interesting thing. We've already seen four different trials, including this one, where Paul presents four different types of defenses and it is still not the last one. So he's in this series of trial after trial after trial. And so as I told you earlier, I'm thinking, man, I'm done with these trials. Why couldn't the Bible just say, and then Paul went through a series of trials, right? But it doesn't. And in fact, each one of them is slightly different and slightly different in the sense that it's still of great importance. And so that's what I want to look at today and how he defends himself uh, in front of the people that are before him. You know, last week we talked about how he came up to Felix and we talked a little bit about Felix. But um, one thing that I, I did because I, I wanted a little bit more context about this particular time. And so I started reading the Antiquities of the Jews, which is written by Josephus, kind of getting a feel for, OK, what was going in the regions of Judea and Jerusalem and Samaria through these times? And Felix, this guy who left Paul hanging, now it says two years later, all right? He left Paul hanging two years. This guy was terrible at making important decisions. He was a procrastinator, as we saw, obviously, right? Well, Felix actually does not do a good job after all as a governor. He actually stirs up Jerusalem and Samaria and even Caesarea to the degree that the emperor actually pulls him off of office. 
And so Felix is no longer the governor, and he's replaced with someone older, someone more mature, someone more honorable, and that's Festus. Okay? And you know something interesting? Portius Festus means swine festival. <laughs> that's just a bonus, okay? Because it has nothing else to do with this. But I thought it was interesting that someone would be named Pig Party. Anyway, so the first defense was uh, when Paul presented uh, uh, in front of the crowd in Jerusalem. Do you remember that? He asks the tribune for permission to speak to the crowd, and he, he allows him, and he gives his defense in the form of apologia, which was his testimony, his defense for his belief, his defense for what he preaches. The second time he shares a defense was before the Sanhedrin, but even then that was not much of a defense because that ended up turning into a mess. The Sanhedrin wasn't even able to try him because they couldn't get control of, control of themselves. Do you remember that? So that's the second time he, was, he stood trial. The third time he stood trial was before Felix, and Felix did not find them guilty. Nevertheless, it says that he was trying to do the Jews a favor, and so he kept them in custody. And two years later, he's still there, and now he's presented his fourth defense, and it is before Festus. So why trial after trial? Well, what's the common denominator of these trials? Paul is still hanging around. He is still found innocent. And here's the big lesson that God's teaching me through this is if we're pursuing righteousness, if we are minding God over man, if we have a fear of God over the fear of man, then we will always be found in the right because that means that we're functioning and behaving according to the word of God. And the, the word of God is true. It's good. It is what guides us. It's the lamp onto our feet, right? And so if we're living according to the word of God, regardless of the trials that we face, we are found victorious. We are found guiltless. Why? Because of the work of Jesus Christ in our lives, right? And so this is exactly Paul's experience. This is what he's, what he's going through. And, and again, he's not, he's not breaking Remember, Felix was waiting for Paul to give him a bribe, and he kept summoning him, hoping that something would happen, that he would have self-gain through him. Nothing. Paul is not about that. He is about serving God Almighty. And so that's where it is, and we have yet another trial, but this one is pivotal. This one is a little bit different from the rest because this ends his time in the regions of Judea, Samaria, Jerusalem. This is it. This is the great appeal, Paul's appeal. He appears before Festus, and so now let's see what happens. Let's dive in to uh, this section, and as we read, there's three parts that I really want to just break it into. The first one is the planning of an ambush. Guess what? A plot to kill Paul 2.0. Maybe this is even more than 2.0, right? I think there's been several plots against Paul. It's probably like 3.259 or whatever. It's another plan against Paul. So the planning of an ambush. We're also going to look at Paul's great appeal. He appeals to Caesar. So we're going to see why that's significant. And then the third thing that we see here is that there's a search for an explanation. Because even though they agree to send Paul to Caesar, the governor still doesn't know what to report, right? Which was the same problem that uh, the tribune Lysias, Claudius Lysias had. And so let's dive into that. The first part is the planning of the ambush. It says, now three days after Festus had arrived in the province. Remember, he's a new governor. Now, a little bit about Festus. So Felix was removed from office, and then Festus comes in. He's, he's part of a noble family in Rome. 
he is a true Roman. And Felix, although he was greedy and evil, Festus was known to be honorable. In fact, he was said to be the better governor between Felix and Albinus, the one who preceded him and the one who succeeded him. Festus was an honorable man. This guy was actually competent as a governor. And as, as we read, you saw that he was getting things going, right? He was moving things along. This was an older man. He was thought to be around his 70s when he took office, and he only ruled as governor for two years. He ended up dying in that region. But that's just a little bit of Festus. And again, his name means pig party. Okay, that's just a bonus. I, I, I found great pleasure from that. It's like, okay. <laughs> and so I'm sharing that with you. And so Festus comes in three days after he shows up in Caesarea. It says he, he had arrived in the province and went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. That's pretty fast, which is unusual. He shows up, he knows that there's work to be done, and then he heads up to Jerusalem. Remember, when we talk about Jerusalem, even though it's south, geographically speaking, it's higher altitude, higher elevation. And so anytime you go to Jerusalem, you go up to Jerusalem, regardless of where you are. And when you leave Jerusalem, you come down from Jerusalem. So he goes up to Jerusalem, and then it says in verse 2, and the chief priests and the principal men <clears throat> of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. Now, who's this? These are the religious leaders and the members of the Sanhedrin. And it says that they laid out their case against Paul. Now, I want you to catch something. Three days, he's in Caesarea. Then he goes to Jerusalem. He meets with the religious leaders, which is important because he needs to establish rapport with the, the leaders. What is the first thing, the first order of business that they bring up? Paul. It's been two years, and they bring him up again. Like, why? Why is Paul on your mind? Because of their hatred for Paul, okay? This was not out of their minds yet. They really, really hated Paul. Have you? I don't know. I don't even want to ask you guys. I was going to say, have you ever hated someone to the degree where you can't stop thinking about it? You know, it's, it's ugly. It enslaves you, this hatred, this feel, right? And so we see it here that these Pharisees have been stewing on this to the point where they have a new, a new governor. It's like an opportunity to follow through with their evil schemes, right? And the first order of business is, hey, you have a guy named Paul in Caesarea. We'd like to deal with this guy. And so the Jews laid out their case against Paul, it says, and they urged him, asking him as a favor. They're not asking for justice. What are they asking for? A favor. Why? Because justice means release Paul. There's nothing against him that would convict him of death. And so they're asking him as a favor. But here's one thing I need you to understand. And this is what's important and has helped me understand when I was reading the Antiquities of the Jews by Josephus is the climate of the region at the time. The climate was ugly. Festus was doing, he was, he was running amok. It, it happened, not Festus, sorry. Felix was running amok to the degree where the Jews, they did not like the Romans anymore. They were having um, um, just friction constantly to the point where there was a lot of chaos in the regions of Jerusalem and Caesarea. And so now Festus has to do his best to bring everything under control, to bring unity, all right? It's very similar to what's happening in the world today where we have two parties that are very conflicting. And here's this guy with the whole goal to unite these people and to just simmer it down. His job as governor was to maintain the peace. Do whatever you can, just maintain the peace. Because Jerusalem is a serious, serious town. And years before that, they had shown that they had great power. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Maccabees. 
There was a man named Judas Maccabees who successfully led a revolt against the Greeks, against the Greeks who ruled them at the time. And so they knew that the, that the Jews were capable of something if they could get their act together. So it was important to put their thumb over them and make sure that they were submitted to the governing authorities, which was Rome. And so here comes Portius Festus trying to establish this reputation, this report, but he's also trying to do a good job for there's a reason why they sent him. And so they're asking for a favor, thinking, hey, we can do with Festus whatever we've done with governors in the past. Did, they did this with Pontius Pilate, they did this with Felix, and now they're hoping to do this with Festus. Kind of manipulate you to do what we want you to do. And so we'll continue here. <clears throat> and so they ask a favor against Paul, and then he's, he's, that, that, that he would be summoned to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush. They were planning an ambush. Once again, here's the plot. Remember, these guys took an oath to kill Paul, right? Two years later, that oath stands. Now, I'm sure that they've had something to eat and drink, but nevertheless, they have that guilt of conscience that they haven't killed Paul. And so they're planning, hey, let's see if we can get Festus to get Paul to Jerusalem, and on his way back, we'll get him. And what's interesting, though, is Festus's response, and he says this, Festus replies that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. All right? Festus says, no. <laughs> this is a little bit of the maturity, the, re the responsibility and the uh, experience that Festus had. He was not someone who was easily persuaded. He knew the law of the land. And he said, no, he's being kept in Caesarea. If Paul's in Caesarea, he's in Caesarea for a reason. He's under my jurisdiction. And so he says, no, but he says this as well. Now, at this point, I imagine that Festus does not have the entire skinny on Paul. He's still trying to figure out what's going on and why, uh, why uh, Felix left the prisoner for, for him two years now standing. And so Paul, uh, Festus replies, he says in verse 5, So he said, Let the men of authority among you, so the high priests, the people of the Sanhedrin, go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring their charges against him. So instead of me bringing him to you, you can come with me. All right, remember, and, it, and we're going to get to it there. In verse 6, he says that he stayed among them not more than 10 or 8 days. So they're kind of schmoozing him. Those eight and ten days are trying to get to know Festus, develop and establish a relationship with him. And so they're asking of this favor, and he's saying, no, 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 you guys can come with me. You're welcome to come with me and lay your charges against Paul. That right there, again, God's providential protection over his people. This is not Festus trying to protect Paul. This is God in control of everything that is happening. God is orchestrating every response, and Festus is far from knowing this, but nevertheless, nothing happens outside of God's control. And this is a huge lesson here to see and, and understand is, regardless of who's governing, regardless of who's in authority, regardless of who's in charge, regardless of your circumstance and situation, God is in control. And he's got a plan for us that we perhaps don't understand, but we can trust. There's going to be something great out of this. And so he invites them to come and bring their charges against Paul. And verse 6 says, And after they stayed among them no more than eight and ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal. When did he take the seat on the tribunal? Right away. This is a man of action. This is not like Felix, right? <laughs> right away he says, All right, we're going to deal with this. You guys are here. The Jews actually did come down to Caesarea with him, and then he takes his seat on the tribunal, which is also significant. 
Because if you're sitting on the tribunal, that means that whatever, um, whatever, let's say, order comes out of that, whatever resolution, whatever command the person in charge makes from the tribunal, that is law. It's final. All right. So if Festus comes up with a verdict or a conclusion, that's it. No one's going to change it. It's law. That's the authority of the tribunal. So he takes his seat there and he orders Paul to be brought out. And when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him. So here's the next part is Paul's appeal. All right, we're going to see how Paul defends himself once again. Another defense, another trial that he stands. And so they bring Paul into him. And so he... The, 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 the Jews come down and they surround him. They stood around him and they bring many and serious charges against him. So I imagine that it's not the charges that we, just, that we saw last week only, but now they're coming up with more creative things against Paul. Do you see that? There was many of them and some of them were really serious, it says, but they could not prove any of it. All right? They, they just can't prove it. You know when your kid ate chocolate cake and they have chocolate all over their face, you know, and you ask him, did you have some chocolate cake? No. Right. There's a lot of evidence for that. And they can't prove otherwise because the evidence is all over their face. This is kind of what the Pharisees look like and the Sadducees, the religious leaders. They're trying to bring this case against the against Paul, but there's nothing to see that actually supports their charges. And so Paul argued, it says, in his defense. And it says, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Now, these are the exact charges that they had brought against them, too, through that attorney that they had hired two years earlier. And so he's defending himself once again against those charges. He says, neither against the law of the Jews. That was sectarianism, if you remember last week. That was to be a ringleader, is what they accused him of, to be a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He says, no, defends himself once again against that. And he says, nor against the temple. That was the, the charge against sacrilege, if you remember last week as well. And that's to, uh, to profane the temple. Remember, they accused him of bringing a Gentile into the Holy of Holies. And so he says, no, that's not what I've done. And he says, nor against Caesar. This is the law of Rome which was sedition, one who stirs up riots. He says, I have done none of that. And here's my defense. And it says here he brings his defense. And then um, it says, but Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor. What's up with that, guys? How come these guys are always more concerned about the people than God? Well, first of all, Festus didn't know God, okay? And his job was to maintain the peace. And so what's the best way to maintain the peace? To be friends. Hey, what can I do for you? What can you do for me? Okay, we're going to work this out. We're not going to let this kind of derail everything. We're not going to tip any holy cows here. Okay, what do we do? And he says, wishing to do the Jews a favor. That was Festus' intent. said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? What he's saying is, Paul, would you like to go to Jerusalem? You can defend yourself again, but this time I'll be there before me. What do you think? That way you can actually go to Jerusalem because that's what the high priests and the religious leaders wanted. All right. Wishing to do the Jews a favor. 
But check this response. Again, God's protection over his, his loved ones, over his people. And then Paul says in verse 10, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. He says, I'm already before you. Why, are you want, why would I go there when I'll be tried before you anyway, around these people anyway? They're here. You're here. I'm under this jurisdiction. I'm a Roman, which is why I'm before you. I'm already before where I'm supposed to be. And so, no, there's no reason for me to go there is essentially what he's saying. And Festus understanding the legal, uh, uh, the, 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 legal, the legal matters, he obviously uh, understands what Paul's saying. And then, he's, and then this is what happens, which, which is the game changer. He says, I'm already standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer, he says, and I have committed anything for which I deserve to die, he says this, I do not seek to escape death. I'm not trying to avoid what needs to happen here. They're the ones who are ping-ponging me. They keep sending me from here to there to there to there, trying to avoid this. This is now years in the making. I'm tired of it. There's no way I'm going to go to another one. I'm kind of re-saying what Paul is saying, okay? If you can just imagine, he's been locked up for two years with nothing. He's just kind of been left sitting around. If I were Paul, I'd be, I'd be done too. I'd be like, no, 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 no. I've already been there. I am where I'm supposed to be. He says, I do not seek to escape death. That's not my point. It says, but if there's nothing to these charges against me, no one can give me up to them. And then he drops the bomb. He says, I appeal to Caesar. <gasps> Did you know that Paul could do that? Because he's a Roman citizen. Is it that the moment he appeals to Caesar, the moment everyone else hands off, okay? Which was amazing. This was, I don't, I don't know if this was just his genius. Maybe it was part you know, of the Holy Spirit just flowing into him. You know what I mean? But nevertheless, he just dropped the bomb on them. He says, I appeal to Caesar. The reason why Roman citizens had this ability to appeal to Caesar was in case of any kind of corrupt leader. There was, it was common for there to be corrupt leaders to the point where they're trying to get their way over the emperor. And so this allowed the citizens to come straight to the emperor so that the emperor would know exactly what was happening and then therefore deal with it justly. And did you know that the Roman court system was actually pretty legitimate? They did a really good job setting up a court system. In fact, so it was very important for them. This is one of the reasons why the Roman Empire was able to grow the way it was and was able to reign as long as it did because they had a judicial system that worked. It really made everybody accountable for their actions. And so Paul understands this being a Roman citizen and he says, I want to go there. Now remember that Paul's aim was to make it to Rome. It looked like he wasn't going anywhere, didn't it? And so he says, I appeal to Caesar. Where's Caesar? He's in Rome. <laughs> and so look what happens with Festus. 12. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered. Remember, he's sitting on the tribunal. Okay? So whatever he says goes at this point. To Caesar you have appealed. To Caesar you shall go. <laughs> Boom. That's it. The decision has been made. Paul appealed to Caesar. He's going to go to Caesar. Now, here's, here's the other interesting thing. 
We say going to Caesar would be a good thing, but who was Caesar at the time? Anybody know? Caesar Nero. He's the very man who executes Paul eventually. But at this time, Nero is not showing those kind of behaviors, that kind of attitude against Christians. Nevertheless, Paul is just trusting the Lord, and he says, I'm going to go to Caesar, I'm going to lay my case against him, or uh, uh, in front of him, and then allow him to do that. And that process could take years, and it does. All right, nevertheless, he's kind of just trusting God in here, because this could go one of two ways. It could go well for him, or it could go, go very south for him, right? Nevertheless, he appeals to Caesar, and that appeal has been granted. Now, let's see what happens next. And I'm not going to go into this, the next defense, which is uh, the, the fifth defense, or actually this would be, yeah, the fifth defense that Paul shares within this, this, uh, this time of his life. He shares his defense once again before Agrippa and Bernice. All right, so let's move into this. I'm just going to set it up. Next week, I'm going to have a guest speaker. His name's Jamie Dorham. He's going to share in chapter 26 where Paul shares his testimony once again in front of Agrippa and Bernice. And so who's Agrippa and Bernice? Let's kind of unpack that. So what, next week, you know exactly who he's talking about. It says in verse 13, and this is, this is now the last part, is the search for an explanation because it has been decided. Paul's going to Rome. He's going to lay his case before Caesar, but we got to send something to Caesar, some kind of report for him to read, right? And so as of now, they don't know what to say about Paul because they have this whole thing's confusing. It's obviously um, fueled by hatred against Paul. 13. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Agrippa, Herod Agrippa. Who is Agrippa the king? And why is there a king? You might be asking. How many of you guys have always been a little bit confused about the Herods and why there's a king and what's the point of a king if the Romans rule, right? That's something that's always been a little bit of a head scratcher for me. But this is kind of how it works, and I hope that this answers your question. You know how the police has jurisdiction over major cities, but the sheriff has jurisdiction over the counties, the less populated areas, right? The, the laws are a little bit different. Likewise, the Herods, the kings, reigned over those county jurisdictions, the outskirts of the major populated cities, and then the Romans policed the heavily populated cities like Jerusalem, like Caesarea, Samaria, etc., right? And so the reason why the Herods were important, the kings, is because according to Jewish law, all right, not necessarily Torah law, but just the governing of the land, it was, the, it was supposed to be a king, who installed the high priest. And the king was supposed to govern Jerusalem and just the, the, the land of the Jews. And so in order to keep the peace, the Romans kept that kingship. However, that king did not have any authority over the Romans' authority. This, their authority would only go as far as the Romans would give it to them. Okay, So it was kind of like a collaboration, a tag team. And if you look into the Herods, it's like looking into the Kardashians. It's just a mess. It's like, what's going on here? Though it's the family drama, etc. Let me show you their, their little line. So if you're wondering who Agrippa is, I have a little image here, and I hope you can see this because it is a little small for you. Now, Herod the Great. This Herod right here is the one who built the place where they're, they're in. He lived in the in, in, in that fortress that they're standing in as Paul is being tried. He is the one who dealt directly with the wise men who were looking for the baby Jesus. 
He is the one that said, hey, when you find him, bring him to me or let me know where he is so that I can go and worship him myself. And then shortly after learning about this new king, he declares a decree that every boy two years and under would be killed, which is why Jesus has to go to Egypt and therefore fulfill prophecies. That's Herod the Great. Got it? Herod the Great has children. The next one is Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is the same Herod that stood before Jesus. He's the one that put the crown of thorns over him, gave him the scarlet robe, and he's also the one that executed John the Baptist. We following? But Herod Antipas's kids did not receive the throne. It was his brother's kids, Aristobulus' kids, and he had Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa is the one who tried the apostles and he was the one responsible for the death of James, the brother of John, the disciple of Jesus Christ. He's also the one who attempted to kill Peter, but Peter miraculously was rescued from that. Remember that? Are you following the chain of the Herods? And now Herod Agrippa is related to Herodias, who married this guy. You see how it's getting like the correct, it's like, it's weird, what's going on here? There's a lot of weird relationships here. And then he has kids, Herod Agrippa, Bernice, and Drusilla. Drusilla was who was married with Felix, if you remember that. And now we have Bernice, who is standing at, next to him at the throne. Wait a minute, brother and sister? King and queen? You see the mess here? Okay, this is Herod Agrippa. <laughs> I hope that that understands or helps you understand a little bit who's here now. And so now some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea. And they greeted Festus. Why are they greeting Festus? It wasn't just like, hey, Festus. It was like, hey, welcome. Nice to meet you. They didn't know this guy yet. And so this was a big time for them to get to know each other. In 14, it says, and they stayed there many days. Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there's a man left prisoner by Felix. Oh, of course, Felix left someone prisoner, right? And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had the opportunity to make his defense concerning the charges laid against him. So he's just explaining the process that he has gone through with Paul. Verse 17, so when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charges against his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about what? Their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Guys, this is the problem. Festus is figuring it out. It's not an issue of law. It's not an issue of breaking the, the laws here around the land. It's an issue about this Jesus and their faith system, right? The Jews are saying Jesus is dead, but Paul's saying this Jesus is alive. And if you're on the outside, you're wondering, what are they talking about, right? This is the whole problem here. This is why Paul is incarcerated. This is why he's imprisoned because of his faith in Jesus, the resurrected, living, breathing Jesus. He knows what he has seen. He knows what he has witnessed, right? And so he's declaring it because he has been called to do such a thing. He is an apostle, one who is sent out 
for, to, to, to spread the message of the gospel. And this is exactly the reason why he's hated and no more. Remember, Paul was one of them. He was promoted within them. He was the leader of, of, of the one who persecuted the early Christian church. And then he encountered the living Jesus, and he's right there in front of him, so there's nothing he can do except testify to what he has seen. And because now he's turned, right, from being this Judaizer, this Jew, to being this Christian, now they hate him for that reason. That's it. This is why it's hard to be a Christian in the world, because the world doesn't understand it, and they don't like it. Why? Because the message of Jesus sometimes punches hard. But it's not because it wants to beat us down. It's because it's wanting to pull us out of the darkness. For Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He has been freed from the witness of Jesus Christ in his life. And so Festus is figuring it out. This is the problem. This is the problem. And 20, being at a loss, how to investigate these questions. I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decisions of the emperor, I ordered him to be sent until I can send him to Caesar. So what he's saying is, I don't need you to help me make a decision, Agrippa, because I've already made the decision. This is what's going to happen. I just have a problem. And I'm hoping you can help me with it, Agrippa. And then he says, but, no, 22. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself, Festus says, tomorrow he will, bring, he will be here, and we will bring him to here, and you'll be able to hear him. 23, it says, so on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came down with great pomp. They were excited to hear about this. This was like juicy, the, probably the best entertainment that they have had in years. Who knows, right? And so they're excited to hear this, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. So you can just imagine a great gathering here. Festus really has inviting a lot of smart people, important people to come to help him just come up with some kind of report, some kind of explanation. And then it says, then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in and Festus said, King Agrippa, and to all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me both in Jerusalem and here, shouting, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. What did Festus find? He could have said, Paul, you're innocent, just leave. Right? He could have done that. Nevertheless, he's like, instead of doing that, do you want to go over there and talk about it some more? And so Paul didn't need to be incarcerated anymore. He didn't need to stand prisoner anymore. There's innocence. He's been found innocent. How crazy is that? Think about that. He's saying he's innocent, but nevertheless, he appealed to Caesar. So Paul himself kind of prolonged his incarceration because now he needs to be tried before Caesar, which I think is just crazy, but God knows what he's doing. God's in control. Don't worry. God's in control. Okay, so let's see what happens next. Where did I leave off? What verse? 25. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. 26. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. So why, why especially you, King Agrippa? Because this man knew the Jewish law. 
This man was much more acquainted with the things of the Jews and the things of the land. He's been governing there. His family's been governing there. He grew up with this culture. And so Festus understands, hey, this is a matter of religion about this Jesus. Obviously, Agrippa, you've heard something about this if you're paying attention to what's going on in your regions and your jurisdictions. Maybe you can help me come up with a jurisdiction. This is why, why Agrippa is thrown into the picture here, just to make things clear. Agrippa is not going to make a decision here. He's not gonna, the decision has been finalized. They're just trying to come up with a report, something to report to Caesar, Nero. And so 27, for it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Well, obviously that's unreasonable, right? And so here he is, here's Paul. And so what do we learn from this? Because it seems like we're seeing the same story over and over, doesn't it? The first takeaway that I get from this passage is that it's challenging to live a godly life in an ungodly world. Think about Paul. Here he is doing his best for Jesus, right? He knows what he believes. He's been transformed by the power of Christ and he's living a godly life. And everything that he's saying and the way he's living is contra the world that he's in. And so he's being challenged by it. Why? Because he believes in truth. He stands in truth. You know, those who walk in truth, according to the scriptures, we're kind of like the conscience of this world. You think about it. The world wants to do some crazy things. And if it weren't for us to say, hey, that's wrong. Why? Well, because it doesn't please God. What would this world look like? So this is what Paul's doing. This is what godly people do. Godly people meaning that they're invested in the word. They know the will of God and they pursue it and they fear God over man. It is challenging to live that way. Nevertheless, it is important for us to live that way. And so let's read John 15, 18 through 19 really quick. Let's see what that has to say about how people just hate that. You know, when we speak truth, it's important nevertheless. So John 15, I have it here, 18 through 19. says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you of its own. Isn't that true? If we just did everything the world says, hey, just go and do that. Just, just be what we say you should be. Piece of cake. Everyone would love us. We would be accepted by everybody, right? The message that we proclaim is just like everything else. But that's not what we've been called to do. It says, if you were this world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This is the challenge. We love Jesus. The world's going to hate us. So what are we going to do? Are we going to accept that or are we going to not accept that? This is the biggest challenge. Paul made it clear. I am not of this world. I have a mission and I will stand according to the side of truth. And that's a huge lesson for us to take away and for us to understand is, hey, the world's going to hate that. But nevertheless, there's good that comes from that. And this is the call that we have as Christians. The second takeaway is that sin enslaves. Remember the Jews? First order of business was Paul. Come on, it's been two years. Why? Because they were enslaved by that. And it's, it's usually manifested in hatred. Like you think about it, when you hate someone, you can't stop thinking about it. I'm gonna tell you a quick little story because I know I'm taking long already. When I was a sophomore in high school, there was this little kid, I call him a little kid because I just really didn't like him. He was, he was my age, my, my class and everything. He was smaller. I, I, he was like a little chihuahua where he was small, but his mouth just ran and he had like words, away with words. I still don't like him, can you tell? <laughs> Lord, forgive me. 
And so one day, I don't even know where it came from. He had this rod, you know, those closet rods, those wood rods that we used to have in closets. He was just walking around the campus with it. It was after school. And I'm just like, why do you even have a rod now that I think about it? And he comes up to me and he's kind of just pestering me and doing this kind of thing in front of me. And I already don't like this kid. And then I think he accidentally actually hit me in the face. And I can tell you how I felt immediately after that. My, my, my heart, my skin, just like a flame. And all I wanted from the depths of my heart was to get back at him. And I would not be satisfied until I maybe buried my fist in his face. Honest, truthful, that's just the feeling that you have. That's what I'm talking about. It's that sinful desire, that hatred that manifests inside of us. It enslaves us to the point where we can't even rest until we let it out. And that's so sinful and that's so awful. And we need saving from that very thing. And the only saving we can get it from is from Jesus Christ. Think about it. This was Paul. Paul was that guy. He hated the Christians. He persecuted them. And it wasn't until he had his encounter with Christ that he was freed from that. And that's all he's trying to communicate to everybody is you need Jesus so that you can experience freedom and love and compassion for others. And here they are, just totally enslaved by sin. Romans 6.16 says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So what are you a slave to, sin or obedience? Then you know, you can tell. You can tell. If you, if you lead people with grace, if you respond with love, kindness, with the word of God, you can tell that you're obedient to the truth. Otherwise, it's very obvious of who you serve. And then if we skip over to verse 17 and 18 after that, it says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient. So see, it's only to, through the work of Jesus Christ that we can be liberated from that bondage of sin, especially hatred. And so I just see this here. I see this passage, which is why Paul is constantly going through trial and trial. And so we need to be careful of who we serve and who we're slaves to. Righteousness, God, truth, or sin, hatred, and anger. And so I'll leave you with that. And then final takeaway. Kiddos, listen to this. This is important to know as we grow up. God is in control. Regardless of your situation, your circumstance, you see how Paul is completely out of control with his own life, right? But God is. God is in control of everything. He has the power over anyone, regardless of whether or not that person believes in him or not. In his providence, in his might, he's able to control all things and work them out for his good. Do you remember when Joseph was betrayed by his brothers? You know, uh, he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Joseph was allowed to go through that because it says in Genesis 45, 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. See, God allowed Joseph to go through that because if it weren't for that situation, the whole, say, the line of Israel would have perished in the situation. So God's in control of everything. And I want to show you something really cool. In Daniel chapter 4, we'll see the kind of control that God has over all things and all people. Now, Daniel's under the jurisdiction of the great King Nebuchadnezzar. And I don't know if you know this, but Nebuchadnezzar is like high king empire of Babylon, king of Babylon. And then he goes from such a great king to someone who literally lost his mind. And he was found eating grass and dirt and he just went nuts, totally gone. Cuckoo, right? 
And it's like, what happened to this guy? And of, in regards to that, this is what Daniel is saying, because at first they can't believe, like, we're, why did God allow such a, such a ruler over us? And in Daniel chapter 4, just, I'm going to give you several instances where Daniel talks about how God rules and how he's in control and how he's got the power over everyone. And, and look at Daniel chapter 4, at the end of verse 17 says, and to, the end of the living may, and to the end that the living may know that the Most High God rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will, and sets it over the lowliest of men. Okay, regardless of who you think is in control, God has put him there, and he rules over that person. And then fast forward to the end of verse 24, it says, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. Regardless of who's over you, God has ordained it over, over them, and he rules. Fast forward to now, verse, uh, the end of verse 32, that same chapter, that same book, and it says, until you know that the Most High God rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. What's the common denominator here? Who's ruling? The Most High God. All right, fast forward some more because Daniel is not finished saying what he needs to say, and he says, he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Who does according to his will? God. Why? Because he rules, regardless of our circumstances and what we think is going on. Was that enough? No, one more. Chapter 5, verse 23. No, the, the, the end of 21, it says, Until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over whom he will. Here's the point. Regardless of the situation, you think about what's going on in life right now. You just think about what's happening in life. It's a head-scratcher. It's like, God, why... Why are we dealing with what we're dealing with? We feel like we can't even handle it right now. You know, it's like, what's the point of this? I know that you're good, but if you're good, why, why does it feel bad? Like life sucks right now. Well, we can trust that he is in control, okay? And we need to lean on that and we need to just depend on him for everything. And then we will see that all things work together for the good of, for those who love him, okay? Do you love Jesus? Know him. The more you know him, the more you see him, the more you love him, the more you talk to him, the more you hear from him, and the more you can trust him. And the more you trust him, the less you worry. That's the bottom line. So I invite you to know Jesus, to accept him as your Lord and Savior, because there's nothing better in life, period. It is your bridge to eternity, and eternity in the, glory, the, glor the, the glorious presence of God. There's nothing better than that. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time in your word. We ask, Father, that you would just help us, Lord Jesus, lean on you each and every day, regardless of the circumstances, the trials in life. Help us stand on truth. Help us see you, Father, before anybody or anything else, that we may honor you and glorify you with our words, with our actions, with our reactions, too. Cleanse us, Jesus. Save us, Father. Make us more like you each and every day. We pray in your mighty name. Amen.